0: Surge Talk is an educational podcast series designed to support the undergraduate surgical curriculum in Trinity College Dublin and may not reflect the curriculum of other universities. This podcast series is designed for educational purposes and is not a source for medical advice or expert opinion. You should consult your physician or other healthcare professional if you are seeking medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.
1: Hello and welcome to Surge Talk, a surgical podcast for medical students from Trinity College Dublin. My name is Susie O'Neill. I'm clinical lecturer in surgery, and joining me today is Professor Rustam Maneksha, consultant urological surgeon and professor in surgery with Trinity College. Thank you so much for meeting us today, Prof Manaksha.
0: Uh, thank you for uh, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Great. So this episode is about an approach to lower urinary tract symptoms. So to begin, this is a 7 year old male. He attends you, his GP, with a six month history of issues with voiding. What questions would you like to ask initially regarding his presentation?
0: Yeah, so I think it would be important to establish uh, how long the patient has had these symptoms, um, whether they're acute or have been building up over a period of time and then to get a sense of what the most bothersome symptoms are. So uh, my approach is typically to divide up um, the symptomatology into uh, voiding symptoms and storage symptoms when I'm taking a history from a patient, Um, and with the voiding symptoms, I start at the beginning. So the the first thing that a patient needs to do when they void is to initiate their stream. And often, um, particularly men, uh, uh, as they get older, Uh, May have difficulty initiating their stream, and that is a symptom that we refer to as hesitancy, uh, where it takes a period of time uh, before the first stream begins, Um, and then when the stream has commenced, uh, we I I like to ask them about the strength of their stream, Um, and uh, because the stream diminishes very gradually. Um, A lot of men forget what their stream used to be like, and they feel that even a poor stream for them is quite normal. So I find it helpful often to stand up and use my hand in front of me to indicate how far out their stream travels as a means of putting some objectivity to otherwise a subjective description of strength of stream. Um, Men with uh, um, lower urinary tract symptoms would sometimes also describe the lack of continuity or intermittency where the stream often is demonstrates a stop and start pattern rather than a continuous flow. Um, the calibre of the flow can also be informative, um, so whether it's a normal stream or whether the stream is particularly thin, Um, and whether it's a straight stream or if the stream splits. Um, I inquire about whether they feel they need to strain their abdominal muscles to force, to generate an adequate flow in order to void. And when they have finished voiding, I inquire about whether they have a sensation like they have satisfactorily emptied their bladder or whether they feel there is some residual urine that they have incompletely evacuated um men who have a sensation of incomplete emptying would often report the need to double void so they've voided as much as they can Um, they think they're finished but have a sensation that there is more to void and then a minute or two later they're able to generate an additional stream and void further Um, with respect to storage symptoms These refer to symptoms that relate to the bladder's ability to store urine efficiently. So as we sit here having a conversation, we're not aware that our bladders are filling. But urine, as we know, is being produced continuously and travels down from the kidneys via the ureter to our bladders, and our bladders function as a storage organ, and typically, um, we wouldn't get a first desire to void until our bladders are half or two-thirds full. Um, but in patients who have storage symptoms or where their bladders are not working efficiently as a storage organ, um, they may develop urinary frequency, which is daytime uh, frequency. Um, so they typically, if we accept that an average person with an average fluid intake would produce about 75 to 100 mils of urine an hour. And if we accept that the average normal bladder capacity is in the ballpark of around 500 mils, we should have a normal frequency of about three to four hours. Um, But it is not uncommon for Uh, patients with lower urinary tract symptoms to report having to void every 15 minutes or every 30 minutes or every hour. Um, And most of the time, it's not because their bladders are genuinely full. It's because their bladders are dysfunctional as a storage organ, so are producing these sensations of needing to void before their bladders have actually reached a half capacity or two-thirds their capacity. And the nighttime equivalent of that symptom is nocturia, Uh, And when you are asleep, you often don't have an awareness of time. So 15 minutes can feel like an hour, and an hour can, you know, can can feel like a lot longer or a lot shorter. So it's difficult to quantify nocturia in terms of time interval. But it's much easier for patients to remember how many times they woke to void when they were asleep. So Daytime frequency, we're aware because we're wearing watches, we've got our phones with clocks on them, etc. That we've just been to the toilet 15 minutes ago. Why are we needing to go again? Or half an hour, etc. But you will remember how many times you woke from sleep, but you mightn't have an awareness of the time interval between voids. So, nocturia is often most efficient, most is best quantified in terms of the number of voids during sleep. And it's probably helpful to inquire about whether it's the desire to void that woke the patient up or if they just have poor sleep pattern and get up almost habitually. Uh, it can be. And, 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 it, and it, 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 it can be rewarding to take a little bit of time to tease that out. Mm-hmm. Um, you might have something that's, non, that not, that's not related to the urinary tract like obstructive sleep apnea, for example. That might be the cause of nocturia. Um, you might have someone who's just got a, a very poor sleeper and, and and patient might come to me and, and say, you know, if if I've had a sleeping tablet and I get a good night's sleep, I actually don't get up at all. But another night where my sleep's disrupted, I'm up three or four times and you kind of go, well, is it the need to go to the toilet that woke you from your sleep? Um, and when you when you're awake and you feel, I better go to the loo, it's really hard to defer that thought because... Even if you do, there is that fear that, well, I'm going, if I don't give in now when I'm actually awake, I'll be woken in 30 minutes or half an hour and my sleep will be further disrupted. So you kind of give in and then psychologically you develop a habit. Um, Urgency is another storage symptom that we inquire about. and that is So when we get a desire to void, we should be ordinarily able to defer that until it's socially feasible for us to go to to the bathroom. Um, but patients who have urgency cannot defer that, and the fear is that if they don't go immediately, they will leak. So the knock-on from urgency is urge incontinence. Yeah. Um, uh, there are there are a couple of other symptoms that I inquire about that don't fall neatly into either voiding or storage symptom uh, classifications, and that's dysuria, sensation of a, a stinging sensation or a discomfort in the water passage or the urethra. Uh, when patients void and, and hematuria, we ask that of all our urology patients as an independent symptom. So that's how that's how I would um, start the history for someone who presents with uh, with these symptoms.
1: Yeah, so he does describe a lot of the symptoms that you've mentioned. He describes that over the past about six months, he's found it progressively more difficult generating the stream, so that hesitancy you mentioned, and he often finds that when he does urinate, he feels like he's never fully emptied his bladder. He also describes the on-off stream that you'd mentioned, the intermittency, and there's no consistent flow. As a result of this, he's going to the bathroom more frequently, about 15 times a day, and nocturia three times per night, and he's experiencing some dribbling after voiding as well. He also describes episodes of urgency, as you mentioned, where he suddenly feels the urge to void and has to go to the bathroom immediately. So he denies any dysuria, hematuria or weight loss, and he has no known neurological history or history of urinary catheterization. His history does include type 2 diabetes, hypertension and a right total knee replacement for osteoarthritis last year. His regular medications are aspirin, metformin, amlodipine and ramipril. So what would be the differential diagnosis for these symptoms and how would you like to further evaluate this patient? Yeah
0: Um, so based on the patient's uh, gender and his age the most likely explanation is that this is uh, benign prostate enlargement Um, but obviously again I I approach being a surgeon tend to approach most things anatomically Um, and it's important to be able to uh, assess and determine: Is this because of bladder dysfunction? For example, is the bladder detrusor hypotonic and therefore not able to generate the necessary pressure to evacuate? And that may be relevant given his uh, medical history of type two diabetes, because there can be an autonomic component that interferes with bladder bladder um, voiding. Um, Obviously the prostate and prostate enlargement. um, The urethra. Could this patient have had a, or could could he have a urethral stricture? Um, uh, Is he or isn't he circumcised? Could he have a phimosis? And could this be at the very tip, uh, 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 some sort of a phimosis causing obstruction? So physical examination will be important. and you start the, the examination will tend to focus on the abdominal and genitalia areas um, and the abdominal examination would include palpation and percussion for a palpable bladder um, the examination uh, of the patient's genitalia um, with respect to the presence or absence of a, of a prepuce, the urethral meatus um, and And obviously, a prostate examination digitally um, to estimate prostate uh, size, but also um, to assess the prostate for consistency and the presence of nodules, et cetera, which may raise the possibility of of, of prostate cancer.
1: So then on examination, the patient you see me sitting up, he seems comfortable and he has a grossly elevated BMI. You do an abdominal examination. It's unremarkable. There's no tenderness or palpable masses that you note. You also move on to neurological examination and it's normal. There's no sensory motor deficit noted and digital rectal exam demonstrates a symmetrically enlarged, uh, smooth, non tender prostate. And there's normal anal sphincter tone, which is reassuring. His urine dipstick also normal. So at this stage, what would be the most likely differential diagnosis? And you've probably already mentioned it. And what further investigations might this patient benefit from?
0: Yes, yeah, so I think the most likely differential diagnosis is benign prostatic enlargement. Um, When we see these patients in the urology clinic as part of their first consultation, um, because the history is often provided in the referral letter, we triage these patients uh, to have a LUT's a lower urinary tract symptom assessment as part of the initial consultation. So they will have seen the urology nurse in our clinic in advance of coming to the consulting room and would have filled out an IPSS, an International Prostate Symptom Score uh, sheet, which comprises seven questions and a further eighth question, which is a quality of life score. Um, the quality of life score is of relevance because it gives us an indication of the degree of bother um, so you might have some patients who have quite severe symptoms but are not particularly bothered by them. Um, and you might have others whose symptom scores are on the mild spectrum but are considerably bothered. And the BOTHER score, the Quality of Life score, is relevant because that to some extent guides us as to the necessity for intervention. Uh, oftentimes, if even if patients have severe symptoms but are not particularly bothered, they simply need some reassurance and perhaps some lifestyle advice about how to modify certain lifestyle factors. Um, On the other hand, where patients might have mild or moderate symptoms but their bother score is significant, they're likely to need early intervention either medically or surgically. Um, In addition to the IPSS uh, assessment, these patients will all have uroflometry. So uroflometry is where a patient is asked to void into a receptacle um, when their bladders feel like they are full, and we try to get them to void when they would ordinarily opt to use the bathroom. Um, And they, they, they void into a receptacle that measures the strength of the flow which uh, so the peak flow is or the q max it computes um, the average flow Um, it measures the voided volume and uh, and after they have completed voiding uh, we do an ultrasound scan of their bladders to measure the residual volume to ensure that they have either emptied their bladders completely or if they haven't then we quantify the the volume of the residual um, and and, and um, in addition to dipstick urinalysis, uroflometry and IPSS, there really isn't anything else necessary as part of the initial assessment for a patient. For example, flexible cystoscopy is not an obligatory examination. We would have enough information from the history, from the uh, physical examination, and from the initial assessment with IPSS and urofl- Um to come up with a recommendation as to how to progress if the flow pattern is such that it may suggest the presence of a urethral stricture um, or if the history suggests that there might be the possibility of a urethral stricture for example there might have been some history of pelvic trauma or they might have had some pelvic radiation or they might have had a history of catheterization or uh, or some such thing, um, and 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 a urethral stricture is slightly higher up in your differential diagnosis. Then a flexible cystoscopy may be particularly useful, um, and in the but otherwise, in the absence of hematuria, cystoscopy is really a second or third line investigation.
1: So, just going back to benign prostatic hyperplasia or benign prostatic enlargement, exactly what is it from a medical student perspective, and how common is it in our population?
0: Yeah, so 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 benign prostatic so i mean to be slightly pedantic so but benign prostatic enlargement is a clinical diagnosis okay. okay and and that's really what patients this patient is presenting with and that's the diagnosis that i can arrive at clinically hmm. benign prostatic hyperplasia is a histological diagnosis so in the absence of tissue from the prostate we can't really label this as BPH okay. or benign prosthetic hyperplasia. Uh, it's benign prosthetic enlargement because that's a clinical diagnosis. And then bladder outflow obstruction is a urodynamic diagnosis. So in the absence of actually performing urodynamic studies and demonstrating bladder outflow obstruction, um, we should refer to this as benign prosthetic enlargement. Okay. Um, uh, now, benign prosthetic enlargement is an exceptionally common condition. It affects about 30% of men over the age of 50. And as men get older, a greater and greater proportion of men will have some degree of benign prostatic enlargement. But not all men, in spite of its prevalence, will necessitate medical or surgical intervention. And that's where the IPSS and the quality of life score comes in. And there are some other um, indications for treatment, for example, if there are secondary effects of benign prosthetic enlargement. And what I mean by that is, um, if someone incompletely empties their bladder, and as a result of chronically stagnant urine develops recurrent urinary tract infections, that would be a reason to medically intervene or surgically intervene, um, even if the, the bother score is relatively low. Um, if a patient again, because of stagnating urine in the bladder, has developed bladder stones that have necessitated surgical intervention or are causing symptoms either with uh, suprapubic pain or hematuria, etc. Um, this would be a reason to intervene with to correct the benign prosthetic enlargement because they've already suffered the sequelae of this condition. Um, or indeed, in the extreme circumstance, if they've got... Uh, A high residual volume that is also associated with high pressure which is now causing backflow or hydronephrosis that's important to intervene because that's now going to cause long-term kidney damage Um, so there are some um, medical imperatives that would guide our recommendation to treat but in the absence of these the decision to treat or not to treat is very much a collaborative one with the patient guided to a large extent by the degree of bother.
1: Perfect. So that leads me on to my next question. So from both, I suppose, a conservative medical and surgical perspective, what would be the treatment options out there for patients who are suffering from symptoms of benign prosthetic enlargement?
0: Yeah. So, uh, again, um, start at the beginning and assess lifestyle modifications. Um, Examine the volume of fluid and the choice of fluid and see if there are modifications there that would produce um, symptom improvement. Uh, For example, patients with um, particularly troublesome storage urinary symptoms that consume lots of caffeinated drinks. um, Caffeine, uh, apart from being a diuretic, is also a stimulant of the detrusor and therefore will exacerbate these storage symptoms. either switching to decaffeinated uh, beverages or reducing significantly the volume of caffeinated beverages and the overall fluid intake will in itself produce an improvement in symptoms. Um, Some patients might be on diuretics and examining the timing of the day when when they take their diuretic and simply changing that uh, might be helpful. For example, if they're taking a diuretic at four or five or six o'clock in the evening, and then their main symptom is nocturia, simply adjusting their diuretic to, you know, eight or nine o'clock in the morning when they pee or void more frequently during the daytime uh, will probably reverse the, the 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 symptoms that cause them the greatest amount of of bother. Um, in terms of medical treatment, there are a number of different medications. Um, Alpha blockers are historically the cornerstone for management of benign prostatic enlargement. Um, And and, and we now have super selective um, alpha blockers. So alpha blockers that super select the subtype of alpha receptors that reside predominantly at the bladder neck and within the prostate. Um, So these are the alpha 1A uh, uh, blockers. And, and they interfere least then with the alpha receptors, for example, in the cardiovascular system, and are less likely to cause cardiovascular side effects like orthostatic hypotension, um, uh, dizziness, and so on and so forth. Um, and, and they act by relaxing the smooth muscle within the bladder neck and the prostate, uh, reducing the outflow resistance, and therefore, improving urinary symptoms by doing that. Um, But the alpha blocker has no net effect on the volume or size of the prostate. So a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor can be introduced and can be used in combination with an alpha blocker, which has a much slower but much more longer lasting effect insofar as that it reduces in time the volume of the prostate. So in in essence, it it changes the natural history of the disease. and good quality data has shown that the introduction of a fiver for inhibitor uh, for the treatment of, of, of men with, with BPE uh, reduces significantly the likelihood for the need for BPH-related surgery in the future and also reduces that patient's risk of a future episode of urinary retention. Um, in men whose symptoms are predominantly Storage in nature, so the frequency, the nocturia, the urgency, but also have an element of BPE. Um, it is conceivable that we use an alpha blocker in conjunction with an anticholinergic or an antimuscarinic. And you know, historically, um, certainly when I was in medical school, we were taught if someone is has got BPE, you avoid an anticholinergic. It's it's almost contraindicated because it's going to produce acute urinary retention by reducing detrusor contraction. But in fact, we know subsequently from very high quality science that this does not happen and the risk is minimal, provided the patients are appropriately selected. So you wouldn't use it in someone who's got a very high residual to start with. But if someone who's efficiently emptying their bladders, but whose primary problem is urinary frequency, nocturia, and urgency, with perhaps a modest reduction or diminishing in their strength of their flow, Using an alpha blocker in conjunction with an anticholinergic would be a very effective strategy. So these are some of the medical treatments. Um, um, in terms of surgical treatments, we've got um, an ever-expanding range of surgeries. The the and I hate the term gold standard, but this was the 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 the, the surgery that's really stood the test of time is a transurethral resection of the prostate, or TURP um and and even even that uh surgery has evolved uh with the type of equipment we use now to to do a, a, a TURP um we are now able to resect the prostate tissue in saline where previously we would have had to use glycine for example and there was risks associated with uh, the development of TUR syndrome which is is a, is a dilutional hyponatremia, for example, um, that tends not to arise anymore because we're in saline using bipolar instruments. Um, but you've got you've got um, non-ablative, minimally invasive surgical interventions that have been developed. For example, you've got a prost- prostatic urethral lift. Or the brand for that is is is, a, is called a Eurolift, where um, you mechanically use your your scope instrument to compress the lateral lobes of the prostate to either side, and deploy um, a suture which is held in place by a tensioning device that keeps the lateral lobe retracted on either side, and therefore mechanically opening the prostate urethra without having to resect or ablate any tissue. Um, you have the introduction of steam treatment, um, where you inject steam at a particular temperature that causes tissue necrosis and which eventually then sloughs off. Um, and these are these are relatively novel uh, treatments uh, that are established um, that we can do now as daycare surgeries. Um, And often can be done in an ambulatory setting with either some local anesthetic or some mild sedation. Um, Then you've got the ablative operations, and we talked about uh, conventional uh, bipolar TURP, but you've also got um, plasma vaporization, which uses a different energy source and vaporizes prostate tissue. You could use various tissue lasers. um, So we use... uh, a green light laser, which is a particular wavelength of laser, that ablates prostate tissue, um, or we could use holmium laser, which enucleates the adenoma, and then we use a morselator um, to 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 morselate the prostate tissue and and remove it. Um, and then you have got um, open surgeries and robotic assisted approaches for the very large prostates. Uh, for which holap uh, is also one of uh, is is a good option for the very large prostates. So traditionally we would have done um, one of one of two uh, open pr- prostate surgeries. They're called referred to as simple prostatectomies, but it is like a slight misnomer. Um, but both of them are named after famous um, uh, Irish urologists. Uh, so the Millen prostatectomy, which is described by Sir Terence Millen. Um, and the uh, the Frère uh, prostatectomy, both simple prostatectomies, and the Frère prostatectomy was named after Sir Peter Frère, um, and uh, and both uh, describe slightly different surgical approaches, but effectively re- remove surgically the adenoma of the prostate, um, and are very good surgeries uh, for the very large prostates, um, and these would have. Um, traditionally been done through the open approach but in more recent times with the advent of the da vinci robot and various robotic systems can now be done using effectively laparoscopic or, or robotic assisted uh, surgeries
1: okay so that's like obviously there's loads of options for treating particularly surgically Just going back to the minimally invasive approaches, would you generally reserve them for people who aren't good surgical candidates or would it more be for people with maybe milder disease and smaller prostates?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, So what's interesting is with the minimally invasive surgeries, because they haven't haven't been tested in terms of their durability because they're relatively novel, Um, we don't know how long or how durable these interventions are going to be. but here's the thing, you know, to compa- I, th- I think as a proponent of some of these minimally invasive approaches, um, that you're doing, you're doing the patients and these surgeries a slight disservice by the temptation of comparing them to a TURP, for example, um, to decide if they are worthy of their place in the surgery options. Um, they are minimally invasive. They are day case procedures and some of them don't involve any ablation. Um, and, and therefore if you have um, perhaps a younger person um, who, who might be particularly um, concerned about the potential sexual side effects associated with some of the other approaches, um, these might be good people to offer minimally invasive surgeries to, even if the surgery durability, even if the, the, the effect of the surgery might only be of benefit for five years or seven years or ten years. None of the minimally invasive approaches are impediments to performing any of the ablative operations down the road. Okay. Um, but you're able to enjoy um, a quicker return to normal activity, uh, preservation of a lot of your sexual side, uh, uh, sexual uh, or avoidance of a lot of the sexual side effects, um, and. Also, um, in the Irish context, um, with competing surgeries, particularly oncological surgeries, for a very precious resource for inpatient hospital beds, um, being able to conduct an operation in an ambulatory setting or through a day, a, a day ward facility um, is very advantageous. Rather than these patients joining a queue to gain inpatient um, uh, episodes where their surgeries are often cancelled and because these are performed for benign conditions are often deemed to be less important Um, but for the individual who's having to live with those symptoms it's it's a very sizable interference with their quality of life so having the option of being able to deliver surgical care with good results in an outpatient setting, an ambulatory setting, or indeed a day case setting, is a very attractive option, I think. Um, Now there are certain selection criteria that have to be applied. For example, the Eurolift or the the retraction uh, procedure that I talked about earlier. Um, If a patient has middle lobe enlargement it's easy to retract the middle lobe, the right lobe to the right and the left lobe to the left. But if they've got a median lobe that's enlarging from the floor of the of the prostate, you can't tack the median lobe down because posterior to the median lobe is the rectum. So you can't put these stapling devices down and tack the middle lobe out of the way. So a Urolift, for example, would be a poor option for someone whose prostate anatomy is isn't suitable for it. So, so absolutely. When discussing these options with patients, there are pros and cons, and there are certain selection criteria that we have to apply. Um, uh, but suffice it to say that there are more. There is more than one option available to these patients, where historically the only surgical option would have been a TURP or an open simple prostatectomy.
1: Yeah. So it's not really just kind of. The one size you know, fits all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just my last question is about the TURP. I think, from my experience anyway, I've met a lot of patients in James's anyway who have had them in the past. Just from a medical student perspective, what would be the main risks associated with that surgery that patients would need to be aware of?
0: Sure. Um, so, because you're resecting, you're ablating tissue, so you're using electrical cautery, and you're you're resecting through tissue. Um, there is a small in, a small uh, risk of uh, post operative hematuria, bleeding that occasionally might necessitate a blood transfusion, but it is pretty uncommon. Um, they obviously need um, a urinary catheter and are often attached to continuous bladder irrigation for a period post operatively. Um, there are infection risks and there are uh, side effects, uh, sexual side effects. Um, because you're resecting the bladder neck as part of the uh, part of the operation, the you're effectively interfering with the intrinsic or the internal sphincter of the uh, of of the uh, the bladder outlet, and as a result, um, a lot of these men, uh, probably up to ninety percent, uh, will report what's called retrograde ejaculation. So, where the ejaculatory ducts open, um, just proximal to the external sphincter um, the path of less resistance is now going to be backwards towards the bladder so as they experience um, climax instead of the ejaculate propelling distally and outwardly through the urethra um, it often travels backwards into the bladder now this is this is isn't dangerous it, it, it doesn't uh, affect the 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 man or the man's partner, but some men uh, are distressed by what they would describe as a dry ejaculate because there's no visible ejaculation, uh, or might be distressed by the reduction in the volume of ejaculation, and some men will um, report that that this in some way affects the sensations, the pleasurable sensations that they get with that. So it's important that men are counseled about retrograde ejaculation, because that is not reversible. Yeah. Um, the risk of urinary incontinence is is very small, um, and uh, an inexperienced hands uh, with respect to anatomical landmarks. You shouldn't be interfering with the external sphincter, uh, and therefore um, urinary incontinence shouldn't be an issue. But it is important to to mention to patient that there is a small risk that they might have some urinary incontinence. Um, and when patients have an overlap of outflow obstructive symptoms, so the voiding symptoms and storage symptoms, it's important to counsel them with respect to the expectations of what symptoms are predictably going to improve and what symptoms may improve Um, so because it is a mechanical operation you would expect when you're creating a a larger channel that they should the voiding symptoms should respond Mm. but the storage symptoms are a sequelae of bladder dysfunction as a result of having to the, the bladder having to work against an obstructed outflow and while many men will report an improvement in their storage symptoms it's less predictable so it's important that men are aware particularly for the nocturia the urgency etc that those symptoms may persist in spite of some form of out, outflow obstructive surgery but that doesn't indicate that the surgery has failed that we may just simply, once we've relieved the outlet obstruction, have to separately tackle the bladder overactivity as a, as a separate entity. In some instances, the bladder recognizes that it doesn't have to force as much anymore because the resistance is reduced and so on and so forth, and the bladder with retraining or training drills, you can retrain the bladder's habit to, uh, to normalize but in some instances, you need medical intervention like an anti and an anticholinergic.
1: Great. That was that was really comprehensive. Thank you so much, Prof and for joining us today. Uh, that completes the episode. My pleasure.